Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want to preach to you a message today that I'm entitling The Altar of decision, the altar of decision, the byline, which Jesus are you following? Which Jesus are you following? I told my wife before I walked up on stage, I sense right now the Lord anointing this message in a very unique way, extremely unique way. And so I'm very expectant of what I feel God wants to say to us. But I got a privilege a few years ago to take the college students that I was pastoring at the time to West Virginia, Snowshoe, West Virginia. Uh, my wife and I were leaving North Cleveland uh, Church of God. We were out in Cleveland, Tennessee to come here to Woodstock to plant. And um, I decided that after five years of service there at that church that I would take leaders who were with us within the ministry to go on um, a skiing trip. I love uh, snow skiing. It's one of my favorite recreational activities. So I take them not knowing that many of them have never put on skis before in their life, okay? And if they did, maybe they put them on at Gatlinburg, okay, where the black diamond is like a bunny bunny slope, okay? And so I take them. I think it's a group of about 15. We get in the cars and we make our trek up to West Virginia. And thankfully, we actually had snow even in Tennessee that day. And so we were still able to get out. And we get up to West Virginia. And the night before we really get our passes to get on the slopes, I, I go and get all the young people and we go ahead and rent our skate or our, our skis and other people rent snowboards. And, and since we already had them, but the lights were already off, there was a little flat area. So we just practiced a little bit. And it was at that moment, I recognized this might not be pretty for a lot of people tomorrow. Okay. This might not be too pretty. I had a GoPro on my own uh, helmet that I wore on my own head. I didn't wear a helmet, but on my own toboggan and the next morning rolls around. And so I get out there and there's a lot of young people that are following me, our leaders, both male and female. And so we just go down a blue and it's good. We just go down a blue and I'm teaching them how to pizza, you know, cause they don't, there's no way to slalom yet. It's just pizza to slow down. Okay. And their knees are hurting bad. Their shins are hurting bad because they're doing this down the entire slope. All right, and I'm like, at some point, you got to straighten these things out parallel, all right? And so um, Esther, who's now a part of our church, was a part of that group that day. And uh, she separated from the group with Tony Parsons and uh, also the group, I think Ashley Arrington was a part of that group as well. And so there was about six of them, and I said, let's go get on this slope and, and or this uh, chairlift. And we take this chairlift up, and at this top of this chairlift, you only had a blue called the, the Dandy Dancer, or you could go to a black. And so I said, listen, the blue is only steep in a few areas. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay in front of you. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to trek across the mountain back and forth. It'll keep your speed from getting up. Just literally, if you've got to turn 90 degrees and go down the mountain, do so. So the first little short slope starts taking off, but it is kind of steep. And so I go down about 150 yards and I turn and I stop and I wait. And what I want to do is let each person follow. And I told them before I left them, I said, you just got to follow me down. Okay. All you got to do is don't lose sight of me. If you need to, you know, sit down on your bottom, whatever you got to do. Well, first up is Esther Boyer weighing in at a total of about a hundred pounds. Okay. And Esther Boyer starting at the top of this slope takes off flying down the slope. Y'all, she is not pizzing. She is not putting her toes together. And I'm seeing that she's picking up speed. Well, she makes it pretty good through the 
first little moguls, but those knees I can tell are not bent enough. And I'm looking over and I'm like, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. And she finally hits a mogul. And when she does, instead of holding that head up, she just becomes like a rag doll and goes face first, hits her head onto the, to the snow and then slides, skis go off and there's no movement. No movement. I get on my, my skis here and I roll over to her really quick. And when I get there, somebody else has stopped. And because it's steep enough right there, I had to lay down on the slopes. And next thing I know, somebody comes up to her and says, she's bleeding out of her head. She's bleeding out of her head. She's bleeding out of her head. So I start ripping her toboggan off. I'm ripping her goggles off. And I'm laying down. I've got her laying on my chest because we're literally on this slope. And then all of a sudden, she starts coming too. And she doesn't know what city she's from. She doesn't know she goes to Lee University. And so literally here I am, the youth pastor, the college pastor, taking these young people on a skiing trip and I've got a person with a full out concussion halfway down Snowshoe Mountain, right? Well, all of a sudden the guys come, they put her in the sled and they wrap her up and they literally take her down on the sled and we get and she has to go to the hospital. And you can imagine I had to call her mom and, and thankfully Ashley Arrington, her shins were so sore after two hours of, 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 of skiing that she didn't even ski anymore. She just went and stayed at the hospital. But, but I, I think about that story story a lot because when I was at the top of Gandhi Dancer, I said to them, I want you to follow me down. Now, Esther, she had a choice to make. She could have followed my directions or she could have taken her skis off and walked with those boots down the mountain. You and I know in life that we have a lot of choices to make. You choose if you want to go to this school or that school. You choose if you want to go to that particular school or this particular school. You choose whether you're going to engage that church or that church. You choose who you will marry. You choose the job you take. We even have simple choices in life like, you know, how are we going to follow the Lord? Are we going to read our Bible daily? Are we going to pray daily? Are we going to spend time in His presence daily? But I think, church, if you'll follow with me this morning, I think fundamentally there are a few questions every person on the planet has to answer. Every person on the planet has to answer these questions. Here are the questions. Number one, who is Jesus and am I following the real Jesus? Am I following the real Jesus or am I following the Jesus of my own imagination? Am I following the scriptural Jesus or the Jesus of my own conjecture? This morning, I want to bring us back to the courtroom. Now, the courtroom scene that we're going to look at takes place this Friday morning, probably around 5 a.m. Jesus was arrested around midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane, Thursday night, Monday, Thursday. He would have been taken to the praetorium where he would have stood before Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas, the high priest, who did not want an insurrection, sends him to the Roman governor. And we're going to see that trial take place early in the morning on Friday morning. This is the platform of Pontius Pilate. Now, when he was interrogating Jesus Christ to determine if he is indeed the king of the Jews. If you've got a Bible, I would love for you to follow along with me. Matthew chapter 27, the gospel of Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. We were going to ask ourselves the question as we read, who are we following? Are we following the... Christ, or are we following the crowd? Are we following the Christ, or are we following the crowd? Start with me in verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. 
Governor Pontius Pilate said, Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him, and Jesus answered, You said, You have said it. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Now I'm reading today from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. People ask me all the time to say, Pastor, what is the best version to read from? It's the one you read, okay? The one you read, because a lot of people, you got people arguing for translations that they aren't even reading those translations that they're arguing about. But another, another message for another time. He says, he says that the governor, verse, verse 13, the pilot said to him, don't you hear how much they're testifying against you, Jesus? But he didn't answer him, not even on one charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, in a very real way, and pray you would bring us this morning to this trial that Jesus went through 2,000 years ago in order to help us to determine who it is that we are really following. Following his lives individually and lives corporately that we're following Jesus the Christ or we're following Jesus of our own imagination and we would leave knowing, we would leave with an understanding, we would leave with a resolve to know that we are following Jesus the Christ. I pray God, you would be the teacher, we would be the student, and when we leave here today, we would not say we heard a good sermon, we would not say we heard a message, we would not say we even experienced great worship. We will say that we have been in the presence of a great God. We've encountered your goodness in Jesus' name. And everybody said? I want to divide this section today in three progressions. We're going to be a little bit lengthier in the third progression, fairly quick in the first two progressions. Let's look at the first progression that we see in this courtroom. Number one, here is what I want you to see. Jesus Christ is rejected by Pilate. Jesus Christ is rejected by Pontius Pilate. Now listen, my wife texted me last night. She said, how crazy is this? She was upstairs. I was downstairs studying. And she said, right now in my Bible plan, I'm reading about Pontius Pilate. How crazy is this? You're preaching in the morning. I said, yeah, babe, but that wasn't the first time. Uh, That was the first time I should say that he was before Pilate. This text is not the first time. Jesus has already seen Pontius Pilate. Pilate had already interrogated Jesus and he sent him out. Jesus now is coming back to him the second time. He's in the praetorium near the upper room on the southwestern side of Jerusalem. Now, one of the things about Pontius Pilate, this is a fascinating study if you ever want to study this out, if you've ever done it. He was over what we call the Roman law of Judea. Now, Judea, the Roman government, literally led and took control of the entire Mediterranean Sea area. Judea was one province of Roman control. In order for Rome and Caesar to not have insurrections coming against them, they put prefects at every province. The province of Judea was have a prefect or a governor who reigned from about 27 AD to about 38 AD. His name was Pontius Pilate. We know he's still not just in scripture, but we have in Jerusalem today called the Pilate Stone. His name says Pontius Pilate. They have recovered it in archaeology. He was there for about 10 years as the Roman governor. He was in charge of all of the Roman law in Judea. Now, the Bible's very clear in this, in this study. It's very, very fascinating. The Romans loved him, but the Jews hated him. Now, the Jews hated him for two reasons. Number one, Joseph, the early historian, Joseph, uh, Josephus, I should say, the early historian, Josephus is, 
a historian that lived in the first century, he writes about what happened at this time. He tells us that on one occasion, early on in the reign of uh, Pontius Pilate, he decided to make Judea, uh, or turn, I should say, and, and march into Judea, into this area of Jerusalem with a Roman legion of soldiers, upwards of probably thousands of soldiers, and all of them had poles in their hands. And on top of these poles were eagles. There were eagles on top because the eagles were the symbol of Rome. Now, why is that a problem for the Jewish people? Why is it a problem? Not everyone at once. Because they were told not to worship idols, not to worship carved images. So naturally, you have a revolt, you have a rebellion from the Jewish people to this man named Pontius Pilate. It was so bad, Pontius Pilate took every eagle off of every scepter pole. He took every eagle, every carved image off the poles in Judea. God said, don't worship any idols. Here's the second reason the Jews hated him. On another occasion, which is worse than the first, Pontius Pilate decided he wanted to create a water system for the city of Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, he was going to fund it with the temple treasury. So he goes into the temple treasury and he takes money from the holy place, from the Jews themselves, and he funds the water system to Jerusalem. This causes an outrage against Pontius Pilate. So this story on Friday morning is a hotbed of insurrection. This is a hotbed of a lot of engagement coming into one single point. Notice in this first century how now in this, in this text he is presented with a question. Pontius Pilate is presented with a dilemma that he cannot win. Follow with me. If he convicts Jesus, then in a sense, he's going against God. But if he lets Jesus free, then he's in a sense going against the people. He really can't win. I want you to understand. You've got to understand what Jesus looks like at this point. It's early in the morning. The sunshine's coming up. Jesus is standing in front of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. When he asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? There's a lot of irony there. Why? You have to understand Jesus is standing before him. His garments are stained with the blood dripping from his beard. He has just been punched in the face by the high priest Caiaphas. Picture it. He has the spit of the Sadducees literally embedded within his beard. Jesus looks anything but like a king. And now he's saying, are you the king of the Jews, Jesus? Notice what Jesus says. He does nothing. He says nothing in response. He just takes it. Friends, feel the weight of this. Feel the weight. In less than six hours, Jesus Christ has been stabbed in the back by Judas. He has been deserted by his disciples. He has been denied by Peter. He's been punched in the face by the high priest. He's been disowned by the Sadducees. And now he's being sold out by Pilate in six hours. A lot has happened this early Friday morning up to the rejection by Pilate. So number one, Jesus was rejected by Pilate. Number two, progression. We see secondly, we see the desertion of the people. Jesus Christ is deserted by the people. Not only Pilate, but the people. He's not only rejected by the Roman governor, but the people of Jerusalem. Read with me verse 15. Let's continue on in our progression. Verse 15 reads as such. Would you follow along with me? At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner. That means a perpetual prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it that you want me to release to you? Notice this. Police fought you. Barabbas 
or Jesus, who is called Hamashiach, Messiah, Hebrew. For he knew they had handed him over because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him and said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. And the chief priest and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. And the governor asked him, which of the two do you want to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. They're getting louder. Pilate asked them, well, what should I do then with Jesus, who's called Hamashiach, who's called Messiah, who's called anointed one, who's called the Christ? They answered, crucify him. And he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood will be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them. But watch this, watch this. But after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Ancient stories and sources tell us that in the first century, it was common for the governor to release a person who was in prison to the people as an act of mercy. The Roman prefects wanted to make the people think that they were merciful. So he wanted to show that he was having mercy on the people by each festival to release a prisoner to them. Now, out of all the people that Pontius Pilate could have released, I want you to see that providentially he chooses Barabbas. Now, now who is Barabbas? In all of the gospels, we have different pictures of Barabbas. John's gospel tells us that Barabbas was a robber. It's interesting. Matthew, we just read, says he was a notorious sinner. He kept on being a person, a prisoner that kept on going to prison. Mark says that he was a rebel and a murderer. I want you to understand, you with me? Barabbas is being accused for the very same crime that Jesus is falsely accused of. Barabbas is being accused of causing an insurrection. Barabbas is being accused of causing a rebellion in the city. Barabbas is accused of being a troublemaker, the very same crime Jesus is being falsely accused of. Now, I believe that when Pilate, I want you to understand this, I believe that when Pilate, and you may have not heard this before, but this is my belief anyways, that when Pilate first goes to the crowd and says, do you want Jesus? I believe that they actually aren't at first interested in crucifying Jesus. I don't believe at first that they wanted to crucify Jesus. I want to show it to you in two ways. Look with me in verse 17. This is really interesting how the writer writes. The way Pilate asks the question, it's almost like he knows that the crowd wants Jesus free. Follow with me in verse 17 again. Would you put it on the screens? Notice what he says in verse 17. It's really, really interesting. Notice he looks at him and he says, So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you? He says, Barabbas, now notice this, or Jesus who is, in essence, called your Messiah. In other words, he's leading them on. Now, this is so interesting. Don't miss this. Verse 18. For he knew they had handed Jesus over because of envy. Envy here, church, is a very crucial word. What does envy mean? It means to have displeasure toward another person because you do not want them to have something that they are receiving. You don't want them to receive it. It shows they are displeased with Jesus, particularly the high priest and the Sadducean rulers, because Jesus is having what they want. What? Power. Fame. 
respect and a following. So in the middle of this conversation, Pilate's like, who do you want? Picture this, you watch, watch, look, picture this. Who do you want, crowd? And he gets a tap on the shoulder and he turns around. And a Roman guard comes to him and says, hey, you're, you're, there's a message sent to you, Pilate, from your wife. So he turns around and he's talking to the guards. And it's at this time that he's not paying attention to the crowd that I believe, if you read the text carefully, that the high priest and the Sadducean rulers say, okay, everybody, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come in, come in tight, come in tight. Let me, let me rouse the crowd. And they say to the people that are gathered there today, when Pilate, Pilate's busy, he can't hear us right now, but when Pilate turns around, I want all of us to say, we want Barabbas. Are you ready? This is yes, this is no. We're going to say, crowd, we want Barabbas. Do you got it? I know Barabbas is a bad man, but boy, oh boy, he's better than Jesus. So when he turns around, we're going to say, we want Barabbas. That's who we want release because Jesus is a bad man. You got it? Jesus is a bad man, okay, crowd? Jesus is a bad man. Unbeknownst to Pilate, who's talking to the guard, he turns around at that time. He's oblivious to what had happened. Verse 20, look what he says. All right, guys, okay, here comes the moment. Who do you all want, Jesus or Barabbas? And what does the crowd say? crowd says, we want Barabbas. So not only is Jesus rejected by Pilate, not only is Jesus, in a sense, rejected now by the people. And, and don't miss something about this crowd. Don't miss something about this crowd. A lot of times you'll hear preachers say today, the crowd that crowned him on Sunday crucified him on Friday. I'm not so positive about that either. I'm not so positive. Let me tell you why. Palm Sunday, when Jesus leaves Bethany to make his triumphal entry to Jerusalem, where he has palm branches laid before him, and they're calling and claiming him the Messiah, I don't think this is the crowd that just praised him as Messiah. Because those people who saw him as Messiah knew he was Messiah. They believed he was Messiah. They looked at him and crowned him King Jesus. That's what they were saying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These people knew and believed he was the Christ. I think that this is a trumped up group of people that have been gathered together by Caiaphas and the Sadducean rulers in order to condemn Jesus. They've been ramped up Friday night and now they're coming, or excuse me, Thursday night and now they're coming on Friday morning. So we see not only the crowd deserting him, we finally, thirdly, see Jesus being humiliated by the soldiers. He's rejected by Pilate, rejected by the crowd and rejected by the soldiers. Look at verse 26 and 27. Notice what the text says. The scripture says in verse 26, then the crowd, the go, the, verse 27, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into headquarters and he gathered the whole company around him. Folks, this is mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing. What's actually taking place? Think about what's happening here. The whole company is another word to say a battalion of soldiers. You know what a battalion is? Upwards of 600 men. Catch the picture. 600 trained soldiers are about to interrogate and humiliate one man. 600 trained soldiers looking down with piercing eyes on one man. They are going to demoralize him. They are going to disgrace him. Why? Because Jesus Christ is claiming to be a king and he looks anything but like a king. I want to give you a quote from an early church father I thought was pretty insightful. The soldiers thought Jesus was a village idiot, a lunatic, 
who is deluded in every way by thinking himself to be a king. And that's why they mocked him. I want to show you what happens here. Look at verse 28. Oh, this is so powerful. Look what he says. The Bible says, They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet military robe, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and placed a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Hail, king of the Jews. Look at verse 30. Then they spit on him, took the reed, and kept hitting him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Up to this point, look, church, Jesus has been wearing an outer garment. It's probably a tunic. Notice what the soldiers do. They strip him of the tunic. They take him to the whipping post and they flog him. They flog him 39 times. You've heard it said 40 minus 1. Hebrews call it 40 minus 1. 40 minus 1 because it was an act of mercy. They believed that when you hit a man 40 times, he died. So they stopped one short. Five times would have made you cry. By the time they get to 25 whips, everybody's throwing up. Why? Because the cat of Dantels had bones and they had hooks in them. And the Roman soldiers were masterminds. They were so well trained at whipping the whip around the body of an individual to hook into the flesh of the individual and then rip the flesh out. And they would rip the flesh out and rip the flesh out. Many people died of, of the flogging in Roman execution. Long before they could ever get on the cross, they died because they were losing so much blood. Here's an interesting thing. Then, as if that wasn't enough, they gather a scarlet robe. Now, your Bible ears should really be up. Out of all the colors that the... Roman soldiers could have gathered. They gathered the scarlet robe. Now, if you know the Old Testament, any bit at all, there is a scarlet, I want to do a sermon on this one time, a scarlet thread that is woven throughout the whole Old Testament as a picture of sin. The scarlet thread, right? Though your sins be red as scarlet, he will wash them white as snow. What a wonderful picture of he who knew no sin becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They put a purple robe on him. Why? Because that was a symbol of authority. That was a symbol of kingship. It was expensive. This robe they put on Jesus was very, very, very expensive. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Understand the type of robe this is. This is a wool coarse grainy, scratchy robe. And it's placed on the back of Jesus. And as it's placed, understand that that wool is now rubbing against the open lacerations on his back, the open lacerations on his side. If this wasn't enough, they pick up a reed from the ground, a stick, and they mock him by standing or giving him this reed that looks like a scepter, which is what kings carry. They gave him the scepter, and then they get some twigs on the ground, and they put together a crown of thorns, and they embed it within his skull. A few years ago, when I got back from Israel, a friend of mine at the church gave me a crown of thorns. I could not set it on my head without it hurting. I couldn't set it. I could not put it on my head without it hurting. Imagine they now embed this crown into the skull of our Savior. They embed it deep within him. Picture it. As Jesus has a crown on his head and a robe on his back and a reed in his hand, one soldier gets down on his knee and he gets before Jesus and he says, Oh, hell, King of the Jews. 
and mocks him. Jesus looked like anything but a king. You're supposed to be a king. Show us now. Do some miracle for us. Because if that wasn't enough, they grabbed the reed that he had in his hand and the Bible says they beat him. It's an active present tense verb in the Greek, which means they beat him over and over and over on the head. Repeatedly, they hit our savior. They hit him on the head and they hit him on the head and they hit him on the head over and over again. And the entire time, church, feel the weight of this. Guess what Jesus does? Nothing. Nothing. This is the man who could call down a legion of angels with the blink of an eye to destroy every enemy of God. And he's kneeling there. He's standing there saying nothing. And why in the world would Jesus say nothing? Don't miss this. You ready? In the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his persecution, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is still preaching to the crowd. He's beaten to the point that of his death, and yet Jesus, on his deathbed, is still preaching to the crowd, if you'll listen to what he's saying. You know the scripture very well, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. Look at me, church. You want to know how much God hates sin? Look at the suffering of his son. You want to know how much God hates iniquity? Look at the suffering of his son. I've asked myself repeatedly this week, how can we apply this text? How can we apply it? I wanted to preach the text in its entirety, this trial, but then how can we apply it? How can we live out what we've heard today? Can I give you a walking point? This is a walking point for Holy Week. Number one, you might want to write it down. It's also in your card. Make sure you're following the correct Jesus. Make sure you've made the decision to follow the correct Jesus, the altar of decision. When Pilate asked the crowd, what do you want me to do with Jesus? They turned from the conversation to wanting Barabbas. Did you catch that? We want Barabbas, not Jesus. Well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Well, what did he do? Crucify him. Well, there's nothing wrong with him. Crucify him. And look, church, in a very real way, I want you to see what's happening inside this text. It's mind-blowing. They want Jesus dead, and they want a murderer. They want an insurrectionist to be set free. What Matthew is doing here is so prophetic. It's so mind-blowing. He is presenting to us, understand the magnitude of this, he is presenting to us in a visible vision way, a substitutionary interchange of one man for another. Did you catch that? He's laying before us. In a visible way, we are seeing in this text a, a picture of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Pastor Craig, what do you mean? What are you saying? Follow me here. Barabbas is a guilty man. Barabbas did everything wrong. Barabbas is in prison for crimes. He committed every crime that he was accused for and he deserves death. 
He is bound, let's say it that way. He cannot set himself free. He cannot be liberated in of himself. But Jesus, on the other hand, is an innocent man. Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus is convicted of crimes that he did not commit. Jesus is now going to be uh, pay the price for crimes that he didn't do. Barabbas is a guilty man, but Jesus is an innocent man. And Barabbas is about to have his place taken by Jesus. Another thing I want you to see, I don't think it's an accident that both men were accused of the same crime. Both of them. Did you catch that? Barabbas is in prison for causing an insurrection against Rome. Now, Jesus Christ is being and going to die by the Roman Empire for being a man causing an insurrection against Rome. So, in a sense, Jesus, in a very real way, is paying the exact price for the crime that Barabbas committed. Watch this. Who is Barabbas? We are. Who is Barabbas? Who are you? Want to know who Barabbas is in this text? I am. You are. How do I know that? This is the crux of the message. Lean in. Did you know his name's not Barabbas? Mm -mm. Barabbas is his title. Barabbas is a Hebrew word that is a compound word. It's Bar Abba. Bar, for those who know Hebrew, means son of. Abba, son of. Son of the father. Barabbas means son of the father. Mark chapter 10. Blind Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Bar Timaeus, son of Timaeus. Bar Timaeus. He is the son of the father. Barabbas is the son of the father. He is simply giving a title being son of the father. Abba, Bar Abba, father. So it's a title. Barabbas is the son of the father. But if you look at the little footnote right there in the bottom of your Bible, and if you have the NIV, NKJV, it's already going to translate it for you because the earliest manuscripts, you see, it says other manuscripts read his name is what? Jesus. His name is Jesus. So in Hebrew, his name is Yeshua Barabbas. The God who saves Joshua, the God who saves Barabbas. Son of the Father, Joshua. Jesus, son of the Father, and Pilate, whether he knows it or not, is presenting to the crowd two choices. Who do you choose today? Do you choose Jesus, son of the Father, or do you choose Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus, son, or who is the Messiah, the son of God? Do you choose Yeshua, uh, Barabbas, or do you choose Yeshua, Hamashiach? He is labeling in front of the crowd, it is your choice. It's the altar of decision. Which Jesus are you going to follow. That's why I asked you when I started this message, who will you choose? Jesus of your own liking to fit your own power, to get your own platform, to move your own ministry, to elevate yourself in your own way, to move so that you can be prideful, or are we going to follow the Jesus who is the Messiah? Are we going to follow Jesus who was crucified? I thought for a while about this, church. And, and I want to bring you back to the cell that day. Can I paint the picture? Let's look at the cell. I want you to imagine what it was like for Barabbas to be brought onto the platform that day. Barabbas is 
in his cell. He's preparing for death. Now, I've studied chaplains through the years, and many chaplains say that people before they are preparing for death, particularly those who are going to be die of hanging, what they'll do for three or four days before the hanging is they'll start rubbing their neck as if the place that the noose will hang and they rub their neck. Another chaplain said that if they were going to die by gas chamber, they studied the behavior of these people three or four weeks before they die, and these people will start learning how to hold their breath as if not to breathe the gas. He said sometimes they'll hold their breath so long that their eyes will pop out of their skull. I imagine, feel this. On the day that Barabbas woke up, he's feeling his wrist. He's trying to imagine what it was like for rusty spikes to penetrate his flesh and into a wooden cross. I imagine Barabbas started to wonder what it was like to endure the agony of suffocation because Roman execution was not bleeding out. It was death by asphyxiation. I can imagine he began to realize what would it be like to be on a splintered wooden cross. The night before, he probably had nightmares. I bet when he was sleeping that night in his cell, they were chasing through his head the clanging of spikes from a hammer to a nail driving through his wrist into the wood. He's paralyzed in his cell thinking, this is it. This is it. This is the end of my life. And then all of a sudden... In the distance, through the corridor, out in the praetorium, at the, at the place of the, the, the trial, he starts hearing the crowd scream. And they're screaming, Barabbas! 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 We want Barabbas! We want Barabbas! And he starts to wonder, what is going on in the courtyard? And then the chanting is cut short by the clanging of keys on the waist of a soldier who begins to walk his long trek down the corridor of the praetorium. Barabbas is in the dark and the clanging cymbal turns to one solitary key that is stuck into a lock and he hears the lock open and there in the moonlight, the darkness or the sunshine and coming through, he sees the soldier and the soldier comes over to him. Feel this, feel this. And he takes off of his shackles, off of his hands and he takes the shackles off of his feet. And then he begins to walk down the corridor and he's walked out to what he believes is the end of his life. He walks out to what he believes is the end of his existence. I'm done, I'm finished, the end is imminent. And when he walks out onto the platform, he is standing now shoulder to shoulder with Jesus the Messiah. He's standing shoulder to shoulder with Jesus the Son of God. And the Bible says, Pilate says, which Jesus do you choose? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Messiah? And stupefied, y'all, stupefied, stupefied, he hears the crowd say, we want Barabbas. He knows this man is innocent and he hears people shout his name and he gets his, he walks down off of the platform and he wobbles into the crowd that day. As he looks back, he sees the eyes of Jesus and he realizes at that moment that Jesus took his place. And I don't know. If this is the case, but I tend to think it is. I imagine for the rest of his life through the corridors of his mind, what he remembered is the beating of a whip on the back of a man who took his place. There were three crosses on Calvary that day. Two thieves, and then one of them was Barabbas's. Three crosses. 
You know what's neat about Barabbas? He's the only human in all of human history who can say, Jesus took my physical place. But every other human on the planet who has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, repentance and faith, and has become born again, we can say Jesus took our spiritual place. Jesus took the punishment we deserve. See, listen, it wasn't two. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't two, but three thieves who died on Calvary. The one in the middle also took something that didn't belong to him. That was my sin and your sin. And Jesus died on a cross. We were destined for damnation, but Jesus devised a course correction. We were destined for hell, and it was hell that we are separated from God in eternity, and Jesus rescued us from that. Are you glad about that this morning, church? Aren't you glad on this Palm Sunday about Jesus' sacrifice? Listen, I imagine Barabbas on Easter Saturday. He wakes up. Jesus is in the tomb. He thinks to himself, I was due for a gruesome death yesterday. Now I'm sitting down at the table with my family. How? Oh, Oh, yeah. It was Jesus. The innocent substituted for the guilty. Because Jesus died, I live on Saturday. So do I. So do I. Because Jesus died, I live in relationship with the Father. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why would you come in on a Palm Sunday and preach to us a message to believers about following Jesus? We're already following Jesus. Not so fast. Why would you speak of the altar of decision? I spent a lot of time with believers in my life. In fact, I was radically saved at the age of 16. Two years out from that salvation, I went to a Christian college, a Christian university called Lee University. And in fact, when I went there, I was removed two years from salvation moment, and I was radically saved, spent time there. I went on to seminary, and, and, and listen to me. I have a lot of friends who encouraged me and challenged me in my seminary education and also in my undergraduate education. Now, I'm a product. To say I'm a product of it is an understatement. I'm a product of it. I love it. But you know what? There were people in some of my classes that I literally asked the question, do they even know Jesus? I'm I'm talking about people who are getting their masters in divinity. And I'm asking the question, do they even know Jesus? Like I even questioned guys at seminary, are they following the same Jesus that I'm following? Are they looking? I've been around people in the church long enough because what I see is people that are trying to add Jesus to their ministry. They're trying to add Jesus to their life. They're trying to add Jesus to the path that they want. I see a lot of people in the church today who want Jesus to elevate their platform. They want to follow Jesus the Barabbas. I see a lot of people who want Jesus to fulfill their selfish gains. And if you would ask those people and even preachers and pastors who have fallen through the years, I'm not here to condemn, lest by the grace of God I become one of them too. But if you ask them where did it go wrong, I don't even think that they would be able to show you where it went wrong. I didn't start there. I don't even know how I really got here, but I'm now using Jesus to get something. I'm using Jesus to elevate me in a way. Listen to me, listen to me, because this can happen to all of us. This can happen to all of us. I've put it in your card for you. Listen to me. Don't fall in love with the ministry of Jesus and fall out of love with the Jesus of the ministry. 
don't fall in love with the ministry of Jesus and fall out of love with the Jesus of the ministry. It's Jesus only. It's not Jesus and. (laughs) It's not Jesus and something else. It's Jesus only. It's not Jesus, I'm trying to make a deal with you so you can rubber stamp my plans in America and I can have gain and I can gain something by what I do in following you. It's Jesus, I'm submitting myself to you as a sovereign God who is worthy enough of my worship, who is worthy enough of my praise because you are the one who came and lived a sinless life and bled and died for me and on the third day rose again. Jesus only, not Jesus and. I heard this years ago. It stuck with me so powerfully. An old Baptist preacher named uh, Reed Parishead. An amazing, amazing name. He said, you can determine where your heart is by saying to God, Lord Jesus, I'm going to obey you and love you and serve you and do what you want me to do as long as I live. Even if I go to hell at the end of the road, simply because you are worthy to be loved and obeyed obeyed and served and I'm not trying to make a deal with you friends don't miss this we love Jesus and we serve Jesus for who he is we don't love Jesus and we don't serve Jesus for what he can do for us we love him for who he is. We follow Jesus Hamashiach, Yeshua Hamashiach, not Yeshua Barabbas we follow the Christ who wants to lead us into life and listen when God calls you Because God is calling many of you in this season. He asked the question, will you work with me and will you follow me even if your work seems meaningless some seasons? Will you work with me and follow me even if your results are like Isaiah's? Do you're sent to a people to declare and you don't see fruit in your life? Let me tell you a quick story. I'm almost finished. Maddie, would you come? A friend of a friend who was in prayer one day. Don't miss this. He was agonizing with God and he got down on his knees and he said to God in prayer, he said, God, I will do anything for you. I will be a missionary. I will be a pastor. I will be whatever you want me to be. I'll be a teacher. I'll be whatever you ask me to do as long as I can do something great for you, God. And the Lord spoke back to him and said, you're not interested in me. You just want to do something great. You just want to do something meaningful. We will do God's work even if no one hears in response. We will follow Jesus because he's worthy to be followed. We will keep moving forward how difficult the road may be because our Savior bled and died and rose again. Yeshia, Hamashiach, Jesus, the anointed one. That's what calling is. Listen to me. For those of you who feel called to fivefold ministry, I want to say something to you. I know this is true of me. I think it's true of everybody who's ever been called to fivefold ministry. When we respond to Jesus' ministry, we're not, or Jesus' call, we are not, what's responding in that moment is our ego. 16 years old, 18 years old, what's response? Oh, of course Jesus is going to call me because I'm going to do awesome things for him. He broke the mold after me. Who wouldn't want to use? Who would allow this much talent to go to waste? That's what we think. But the hard truth is not that. It's between you and God. It's between you and loving God and loving people. It's 
you and following God. See, listen, if you love to sing, but you love to sing because you love the response people have to your singing, God won't let that stay. Can, can I just preach to you a minute? Can I speak honestly and openly for you? If you love to preach, but you love to preach because the response you get, that's about flesh and ego. And God will let it stay when you're young. He'll let it stay when you start out the journey with Him, but He will not let it stay. He won't let it stay. He'll purge it. He'll put you through a Via Dolorosa. He'll challenge you. He'll put you through the way of suffering. He won't, He will tolerate it when you're young, but He won't tolerate it when you grow old. And a part of maturity and following Jesus is saying, God, I don't want to follow you and do ministry because it somehow feeds my ego. I don't want to follow you and do what you asked me to do because it makes me look better. That same friend I told you about, he was sitting with his friend a few years ago. His friend was a multi-talented, crazy talented preacher. Talented preacher. But this dude was jumping from church to church because every time he went to a new church, controversy started. He would have an affair with his wife, on his wife, and he would have an affair in the next church. And the churches that interviewed him knew that, and they kept on hiring him anyway because he was so gifted. He was so gifted. He sat down with my friend one night, and he said to him in tears, he said, I, I want to break it. I want to break the cycle. I, I know this is destroying my family. I know this is destroying my wife. I know this is destroying my ministry. I want to break it. I hate it. I hate it. And the friend, my friend, felt like the Lord said to him, and he told him, I will heal you if you'll give up ministry. So my friend heard the Lord say that and he said to him, I feel like the Lord's saying to you that he will heal you and he will heal your ministry or heal your marriage if you'll give up ministry. And the guy looked at him right back without hesitation. He said, I can't do that. I can never do that. I don't know who I am if I'm not doing ministry. And when my friend told me that a few years ago, it so haunted me and stayed with me because at the end of the day, if my identity is in ministry and not the calling of God, then I will leave God to keep my ministry. I will leave Jesus to fulfill my platform. Which Jesus are we following? That's why I think the song captured it so well. Holy King, Almighty Lord, saints and angels all adore. I join with them and bow down. Jesus, only Jesus. You will command the highest praise. Yours is the name above all names. You stand alone. I stand amazed. Jesus, only Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.